I definitely had this sort of issue with venture capitalists and I mm. felt like entrepreneurs that take investment, they're just sellouts and what the hell, like that's not entrepreneurship, whatever. But what I realized is that taking money is just a tool. Hello and welcome back to Indie Bites, the podcast where I bring you stories of fellow indie hackers in 15 minutes or less. Today, I'm joined by Spencer Fry, who is the founder of Podia, a platform helping creators make a living online through selling courses, digital downloads, webinars, and more. Seven years in, they have a 35-person team and have an awesome product for creators. But this isn't Spencer's first rodeo bootstrapping next in three businesses between 2003 and 2014, notably Carbamate and Typefrag, which you might have heard of before. But what's interesting about Spencer is he actually raised funding for Podia, and I wanted to find out why a seasoned bootstrapper like Spencer went down this route, and if it's an option that more indie hackers should consider. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know what's coming. It's the HRF sponsor slot. But I'm wondering how many of you have actually signed up and given it a go? And if you haven't, why not? SEO can be such a scalable and effective way to grow your business, and HRFs is the best tool to help you out of it. So indie hackers, if you want to get more traffic to your side project, pause this episode now and head out to try HRFs free webmaster tools. You'll see what keywords your pages are ranking for and discover what changes you need to make to improve your search ranking. Head to hrefs.com slash awt, that's A-H-R-E-F-S.com, or hit the link in the show notes. Oh, and there's a nice 50-minute version of this conversation with Spencer on the Indie Fees membership, also available in the show notes. Now, let's see if we should all raise some money. Spencer, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Doing really well, James. Thanks for having me today. Pleasure to have you here. So Spencer, you started Podio in 2014, having bootstrapped and exited three businesses previously. Many people listening will be wondering why you even entertain the idea of raising funding. Tell me how raising money even entered your mind for Podia. A friend of mine introduced me to this venture capitalist here in Brooklyn, and just for to grab a beer outside of this beer garden. And we started talking and he asked me if I was working on anything. I shared him some of the, the early work I was doing. We had a little bit of a prototype at the time, some designs. I actually had invested $30,000 of my own money into the business. Oh, wow. Towards the end of our meeting, he basically was like, I love this, love to keep in touch. I was like, okay, cool. I left. And then the next day I had a term sheet in my email inbox. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. I didn't really realize that I was pitching him, to be honest. And maybe that's why it worked. And so he, he sent me a term sheet. We discussed it that day and the following day. And with we had closed a $500,000 pre-seed round, which is back in 2015. And then since then, we've raised some more money from other venture capitalists, et cetera. We haven't raised in over three years, though, as we're a profitable business. And we don't have the need for additional capital this time. And having bootstrapped and exited businesses before successfully were were you not skeptical of vc what made you more open to it because you've been there you've done it you'd bootstrapped you'd seen the fruits of your labor come to fruition why Mm -hmm. was it then that you thought yeah actually let's take funding for this so i think that i would have continued to bootstrap it (laughs) if it wasn't for that meeting that Mm -hmm. i had um, with that that venture capitalist but basically what i recognize is that having five hundred thousand dollars to start the business really helps you focus on the long term one of the issues with bootstrapping businesses honestly is that you constantly have to worry about the short term you have to worry about getting revenue quickly a lot of your marketing decisions a lot of your product decisions are about getting cash into the business because you need cash as soon as possible to build and grow. Whereas the nice thing about raising some venture capital, which bootstrappers tend to have issue with, is that capital gives you time to figure things out before you need revenue. And so I really liked for this business where we were entering this new market to have some money, to be able to experiment, to be able to think about the long term and to think about what is the product that I want to see in the market 10 years from now. Do you think more 
bootstrappers should start to look for funding as an option. When I was a bootstrapper for my first three companies, I definitely had this sort of issue with venture capitalists and I mm. felt like, oh, entrepreneurs that take investment, they're just sellouts and what the hell, like this is, you know, that's not entrepreneurship, whatever. But what I realized is that taking money is just a tool and yeah, you're giving away some of your company. The goal is that investment into your business will grow a larger pie, as people like to say. I'm happy to give away 10%, 20% of my business for a meaningful amount of capital so that I can create a more valuable, better product. The creator economy now is booming. We're, yeah. we're seeing all sorts of tools popping up for creators to use. And um, we're seeing new people discovering how they can create a course or digital downloads. Um, at the start of last year, you wrote an article, which is sort of 10 bold predictions. Can you talk me through mm -hmm. some of those, how some of those are starting to play out now and where you think the market is heading over the next few years? So a bunch of different things have already been proven to be true since writing that, that article a little bit over a year ago. I think one of them is that when I wrote this, the creator economy was just starting to grow a lot. And I said that it was at less than 1% of what it will be in my lifetime. And we're definitely seeing that play out. Like it seems every single quarter, it's like doubling or tripling and every single year is growing so, so quickly. Another prediction was that private small groups would become like a really popular way to deliver online courses. And that's been huge this year. And we're seeing a lot of creators be really successful with that, where they say, you know, have like a course with a live session that's limited to say 20 enrollments. And then they run that for a couple of weeks, close it, and then they open up a new one. So another interesting point you were making about these mm -hmm. small groups, which I, I hadn't really thought about and cohort based courses. Why do you think they're more effective than just a hour long video you might put out? So I think it definitely depends on the person. Some people perform or learn much better when they're just running through a private course that's a video they have to watch, yeah. et cetera, because they're good at pacing themselves, that sort of thing. But I think for a lot of people, especially during COVID and working from home, you know, having that kind of accountability in a private, in a small group session is actually really helpful. So for example, my wife is a, a writer and a copywriter and she's in a private writer's group and mm. they meet every week uh, for an hour and a half on Tuesdays and they you know, share, collaborate, support each other, give notes on each other's writing, et cetera. Yeah, I, I hear you entirely. That makes sense to me from sort of two examples. One is Weekend Club, it's a community I'm a part of. And then I'm doing a course at the moment um, on monthly.com. Uh, which mm -hmm. is very involved and I have actual assignments to do. And usually if I've bought courses online, I'll spend a hundred bucks or something and maybe not revisit it that often. But with this one, I'm getting emails to publish my thing. I've actually got to give feedback on other people in my <laughs> peer group on how they're doing. So I'm actually engaging it. I don't want to let them down. I don't want to. So I've yeah. enjoyed that part of it. The idea of not letting down a group of anonymous peers is, is really nice. <laughs> I, I think it does give you that like accountability. You know, my wife is like, I have to give notes on all these people because they've given notes on me and I got to go to this thing and I don't want to let them down. So I really like the, the private group small session. And I think that's we're going to see a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. Talking more about the creator economy, how can entrepreneurs or indie hackers maybe capitalize on the opportunity in such a growing market? Just being a traditional creator, I think what I always recommend people is get a, get a site up quickly, talk about who you are, talk about what you do, talk about what you know, and then start by creating a digital download. I think that's mm -hmm. the easiest entry point for all creators. That and, you know, if you do coaching, setting up a coaching product also really helpful. That way you can attract single people that are looking to basically 
learn from you with the coaching product. And then you can use the digital download as more of a list building. Uh, once you start to get some customers in that, then you can start to explore courses. I do not recommend starting with a course for most people. Mm-hmm. I think it's it can be demoralizing, realizing that you've created two videos, but you're only 5% of the way there or something <laughs> like that. But they're very good once you have an established community, an established audience to go into courses is like a flagship product that you sell for 500 bucks or whatever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's my sort of recommended path in terms of creating tools for creators. It's really tricky right now. One, this market changes quickly. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to create a product um, that serves a need for today, it may not be a product that serves a need two two, uh, years from now. So example, during Early COVID, we saw a lot of entrepreneurs build a product that helped people get payments for Zooms and stuff like that. And we saw a bunch of these things um, spin up and they've all shut down. You know, you got to be careful with riding the wrong wave. So I usually tend to tell people like you want to really think about the long term and not think about really what is the the specific thing that's happening today that may or may not be attributed to COVID. It may or may not be here in one or two years from now. I think the fastest growing area of the creator economy that people might want to build in is in the financial side of things. So like, how can you support Mm. creators financially? How can you like help them with taxes? How can you help them with HR, legal, et cetera? So I think there's still a lot of room in that area. If you want to create another product to sell digital products, I would say that space is taken. Obviously, I'm going to say that, but I do still see people creating products that try to compete with us and others. And I think, yeah, you're going to have a tough time because there's just so many established players in the market like us that have tons of resources, have five, six, seven years of code we've written, customers we have, et cetera. So I think you need to attack more of those sort of like supportive products for creators. Yeah, I wasn't planning to get some army of indie hackers trying to take on, <laughs> on Podia through, <laughs> through, through your own answers, but just as serving as a little bit of inspiration. So uh, I, I want to move on to, to some few other things that I was reading up on you. That mm-hmm. uh, you've, you've been an entrepreneur your entire life, and I read that you've never had a paycheck from anyone else. Is that true? You've never been... That's correct. Yeah, I've never had a job working for other anyone else other than a summer job when I was like 13, 14, where I was working at a bike store, helping sell bikes. <laughs> do, do you ever feel like you've missed out on? Absolutely no. No? Not at all? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. I, I mean, I love working for myself. I love being a creator, building products from scratch. I think there's something super amazing about taking a blank piece of paper and then Seven years later, I've got a business that's profitable, 35 employees, tens of thousands of customers generating millions of dollars a year. So yeah, that's the only life for me, really. Do you, do you struggle working for other people? Like if, if you were given a job? Yeah. 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 I, I think that I could fake it for a while, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's nothing really for me. I think one of the things I always think about too is how many more businesses do I want to start in my life? You know, I love working on this and I think I'll work on this for at least another 10 years. But at some point, I'm going to have to move on at some point. And I always think if I'm 45 or 50, do I really want to start another tech business? Mm. And the answer I always say is absolutely no. And then five minutes later, I'm like, yeah, I definitely will. Mm. (laughs) So I just think it's part of, you know, in my DNA. You're a solo founder at Podia, but you've had co-founders at previous startups. Yeah. What are the pros and cons of having a co-founder versus going solo? 
So for for two of my previous startups, one I had one co-founder and one I had two. You know, they're good and they're bad. So they're good in the sense that when it's working out well, your relationship is working out well with that person, everything's great. You've got another person who's completely invested. They're working hard. They've got your back. You can collaborate with them, Mm -hmm. et cetera. As soon as it starts to go poorly, and honestly, I think it's, there's been research on this. It's 70, 80% of the time it goes poorly. It really can drag you down and it can crush your business. You know, you have different strategies. So the, the team is confused as to who should be making w- which decisions. Like you can't agree on anything. Things get sold out. It's terrible. And then on the solo founder side, there's a lot more pressure on you because you're the individual, you're pushing the strategy, you're coordinating your decision maker, et cetera. But if you can hire someone who's absolutely amazing to be like your right hand woman or man, then you basically have a co-founder that you can work with. But at the end of the day, it's your decision that's leading the team. And so I really like that relationship a lot more. Also having co-founders, it's just, it's the biggest cut in your equity. It's way more than having a venture capitalist, especially if you have two. So say now you're starting at 33% for each person, then you go to raise money, you give away another 20% of your company. Now you're 20, 25% of your business and it just continues to snowball. And then eventually you're at under 10%. You're like, why am I even building this anymore? (laughs) Whereas as a solo founder, you start with hundred percent. It's just a much better economic situation for you too. Yeah, I, I've, it's funny how people can be very black and white with their opinions on this. I think that was mm-hmm. quite balanced in it. I've always opted for going solo with things, yeah, mainly because I, I've not found anyone that I've wanted to work with that closely on something. But and that's I, the key. Because mm. I think most people, they can't find anyone, so they settle for someone. You know, you wouldn't do that with your wife, your husband. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You wouldn't be like, oh, well, I can't find anyone. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> let's go on like two dates and then let's get married, which is so common. It's insane. Like I, I know people that go to a mixer or whatever for co-founders mm-hmm. and then they're literally working together the following day. And it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. So I blame Y Combinator for that. I think Y Combinator seven, eight years ago, however long, they were basically like, if you don't have a co-founder, we're not going to fund you and Mm. you must have a co-founder, et cetera. I think they've actually walked that back a lot, but I think it got into everyone's head that they can't be a solo founder. And I think that was really poor advice. Spencer, you've been an amazing guest. I round off every episode on three recommendations, a book, a podcast, and an indie hacker or entrepreneur that you follow or admire. I like all the Ben Horwitz books. I recommend reading both of his. I listen to a bunch of different podcasts. The one that I listen to daily is just a news podcast called Axios Today. I really like the the All In podcast, which is a very mm. tech-focused podcast. Indie hacker, entrepreneur. So not an indie hacker, <laughs> but Toby from Shopify, I think is one yeah. of the most brilliant entrepreneurs right now. Spencer, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Bites. All links for everything discussed will be in the show notes. As always, if you want to learn more about SEO, then check out today's sponsor, Ahrefs. And if you want to hear more from Spencer, there's an extended version available on the Indie Feast membership. Head to bites.fm slash membership for that. All links are in the show notes. See you next week.